Open our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. And I tell you, we're a needy people, but I'm glad we've got a big God. Amen. He's never been scared or intimidated or nervous over our prayers. Amen. He's he's a big God. First Corinthians chapter number four tonight. And I'd like to just read the first five cha- uh, verses of this chapter. And uh, you thought I was going to say the first five chapters. Amen. And you got nervous. But first five verses of this chapter, and then I'd like to go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The Bible says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. I pray you'd use it tonight. Pray we'd rightly divide it tonight, and I pray you'd be glorified through our obedience and response to it. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I love this passage of Scripture because it deals with a thought that is woven throughout Scripture, uh, but is probably nowhere else as succinctly dealt with in regards to our responsibilities as Christians, as it is here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. And that is the concept of stewardship. Now, stewardship, this is not a new thing by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Christ told parables about stewardship and taught principles about stewardship. But Paul places this squarely in the life of the spiritual responsibility of believers. Now, I'm aware that Paul probably has in mind his place as a preacher of the gospel and as uh, as the Lord's servant. He's been speaking in chapter 3 about him and Apollos and, and, and Peter and the role they've had in the work of God in the lives of the believers at Corinth. But I'd also remind you that in chapter 3, he talks about every believer's responsibility to build upon the things, the foundation that has been laid in our life of Jesus Christ. He talks about how that we have a responsibility as the building of God and as fellow laborers with God to take the foundation that we've received through Jesus Christ and our relationship with him and then to build upon that a life that gives glory to God. In other words, he is really in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 dealing with very similar concepts. And that's your responsibility and mine to do something with what Jesus Christ has given us. Can I say we all have a responsibility to do something with the life that Christ has given us? Well, we don't have the right to just sit back and do nothing with it. We've been entrusted with far too much. And so he employs this concept of stewardship. Now, what is a steward? Well, Webster defines a steward as a man employed in great families to manage the domestic concerns of the household. He also says it could reflect the idea of a of an officer on a ship who is appointed to distribute provisions to the officers and crew. He tells us in Scripture and theology that a minister of Christ is a steward whose duty is to dispense the provisions of the gospel, to preach its doctrines and administer its ordinances. But we could probably summarize it very simply in this way. A steward is a man who's been entrusted with a great resource, and with that comes a great responsibility. He has been granted oversight of something, 
And he is now expected in the stead of the owner of that possession to do something that would honor and glorify and please the person who is the owner of. And what a picture that is of your life and my life as saved individuals. Yeah, our life is a precious thing. Uh, so precious that Christ died on the cross of Calvary that we might have this new life in him. It's a precious thing, and we've been given this life, but one day we'll have to give an account of this life to the Lord of life and light, to the Lord of glory. And so in many ways, we are stewards of this life that God has given us. Paul opens this passage with three truths in verse number one to arrest our attention and sort of set a framework about what it means to be a steward. He says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There's three things he mentions here. I want you to notice them. First, there's a word about our testimony. He says, let a man so account of us. Now, he's going to go on to talk about how being judged by the opinions of men is not the predominant motivating factor in his commitment to Christ. But he does recognize that we have a testimony and that the world is paying attention to the way we live and that our life has a commentary about it upon the person of Jesus Christ. When you think about that phrase, let a man so account of us, it sort of brings two things to my mind. First, when I think of something, an accounting that's being given, he says, let a man so account of us. It denotes the idea of a recognition. In other words, let a man consider us to be ministers of Christ. Let them, when they look at us, see us as the ministers of Christ. Now, while I think Paul has a particular application to preachers of the gospel and people that are in ministry, I think this could be said about every born-again believer that all of us, when people look at our lives, they ought to see something about Jesus Christ in our lives. They ought to recognize that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to Jesus Christ. I wonder who people would think we belong to if with no verbal commentary of our life, they just watched the way we lived by day by day. I wonder who they'd think. I wonder if they'd think we belong to our job. I wonder if they'd think that we belong to our telephones. I wonder if they'd think we belong to our television. I wonder if they'd think that we belong to our hobbies. Or I wonder if they look at us and say, well, obviously this person is a steward of Jesus Christ because they spend their time serving Jesus Christ. So I think there's a recognition in that idea of the word account. But then there's another word. When it says, let a man so account of us, it also contains the idea of not just a recognition, but a reckoning. In fact, an accounting is literally an assessing or scrutinizing and balancing of a set of books. I don't, uh, our resident accountant around here, I don't know, I don't see Jerry and I don't see April. So uh, if we have to count up the offering, we're going to have to take our shoes off to do it. Amen. And uh, (laughs) they're sort of uh, the two accounting minds around here. And I took accounting when I was in high school, but, uh, you know, I, 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 and I guess I was okay at it. It didn't seem very hard to me, but I didn't want to be an accountant, so I didn't really pay a lot of attention. An accounting has the idea of a balancing of books of a reckoning, of a bringing into a right assessment. I would remind you, hey, as ministers of Christ, as servants of Christ, as stewards of Christ, uh, there's going to come a day there's going to be a reckoning in our lives. 
But then beyond that, it says, let a man so account of us. They are going to examine our lives. They are going to scrutinize our lives. They are going to make a decision and determination about what they think of Jesus Christ. When they run the numbers on your life, what do those numbers say? So he gives us a word about our testimony. But then he gives us a word about our task. He says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. In other words, he said, you're a steward. And what is your stewardship? Well, the first thing he says that is within our stewardship is Christ. And what does that suggest to us? What does it mean to be a minister of Christ? Well, I think our task involves two things. One, it involves the ministry of representation. In other words, our our ministry is a ministry belonging to Christ and in the name of Christ and representative of Christ. So as a steward, people will make a decision about who Christ is and what Christ's standards are when they look at us and our lives. It's amazing. We never think about standards as being a metric through which people gain any illumination or ideas about our Savior. But we absolutely should. When you go to a restaurant and it is an unclean place, uh, if you go and you notice that there's there's things, you know, dirt on the floor and there's sticky spots on the table and you notice that the forks have spots on them, that tells you something about the manager of that restaurant. It don't always tell you about the busboy, but you know that whose job it is to see to those things is not seeing to those things and it gives you an opinion about the manager of that restaurant. I wonder when the world looks at Christians with loose standards what they think of Jesus Christ. Surely it's a commentary upon him. It's the ministry of representation. We're the ministers of Christ. We're his ministers. We belong to him. But not only is it a ministry of representation, stop and think of it in this respect. We are ministers of Christ, which means we minister or administer Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be very careful with what I'm about to say. Uh, We do not have some proprietary claim over the grace of God. Uh, we we are not the ones, we are not arbiters of His grace and mercy. People don't come have to ask Preacher Toby's permission to get saved, amen? Uh, people, and that's good because heaven be a lot smaller, amen? People don't have to, and that's not what I mean. But what I mean is the world is without Christ. We have Christ. And part of our responsibility is to take the knowledge we have of Christ and minister that or administer that to a world that does not know Him. It's a ministry of representation, but number two, it's a ministry of reconciliation. We are to take Christ to an estranged, lost, alienated world and show them that they can know God through him. So Paul speaks about our testimony and about our task, but then he speaks about our trust. He says this, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, you know as well as I do, what does that word mystery mean? It doesn't mean something that cannot be known. That's how we think of a mystery or something that cannot be known and we have to ferret out the truth. Some of y'all probably watch some of those mystery shows and, and the whodunit and trying to figure out. I'll give you a good clue. If there's ever an actor who uh, is too expensive to not be the star, he did it. All right. If you're watching a mystery show. You know, and and you're just you're watching it. And you're like, how'd they get him? Well, he's the star of this episode. I just I'm sorry, I I broke the system for you, but 
you watch these mystery shows, and a mystery is something that you don't know, but you have to discover. But in the Bible, that's not what a mystery is. A mystery is something that at one time could not have been known because it was concealed within the mind and heart of God. No man could have known it. You couldn't ferret it out. But because we're living in the New Testament and light has been shined and things have been disclosed and we walk in the light of New Testament truth and because God's not giving any more Bible, He's given His Word, He's finished His Word to to mankind. Because of that, to us, sitting in this day of grace, a mystery is something that could not have been known but now has been made known unto us through the Word of God. And here's what Paul says. We have a great trust that's been given to us. And that trust is is the representation and reconciliation of Christ. But it's also the mysteries of God. We have some knowledge through the word of God. It's not proprietary to you or to me, but because the world doesn't believe the Bible and we believe the Bible, there are things within the Bible the world doesn't know about. But you and I as Bible believers, it's our job to take those truths and to share them with the world. Notice two things about this trust. The first is the truth that we are entrusted with, the mysteries of God. In other words, these are not just broad concepts of God. It's not just the existence of a God. I mean, there's many in the world that don't know God, but they believe in a God. But we know how the plan of God comes together and how it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. We take the mystery of God and show to the world that what they did not know, which was that the way to God could only be provided through the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, has now been provided and they can know God. Boy, what a great truth we've been entrusted with. But then think about the time that we were entrusted with. And maybe I would say this, the moment in time we are entrusted with. Paul says the mysteries of God. You know what that means? That means the ministry of our stewardship has particular application for such a time as this. I mean, you understand that to be a steward of the mysteries of God, we have to be nestled in this moment in human history When the truth of God regarding these mysteries has been revealed, but before it is too late for them to be of any practicable effect to a person's life. And you and I have been placed in this moment in history where the hand of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ has been extended to a lost and dying world. What a precious opportunity that is. Boy, what a stewardship that we have. Before us. And so Paul then shows to us four things that are required in stewards. Notice with me verse two. He says, moreover, it is required in stewards. There are some things that are required if you're going to be a fit steward. There are some things that if a person had in their life, they wouldn't be a very good steward. And there are other things that if a person is going to be fit to the task, they must have in their lives. So Paul, after laying out this argument that we are stewards, what are we stewards of? Well, we're we're the, the ministers of Christ and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We have a responsibility. We have a ministry. We have a calling God has given us. So what will it take? For us to do that effectively. I want you to notice these four things and then we'll be done tonight. Let me say number one tonight that faithfulness is required in stewards. That's what verse two says. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. I'm glad to be a steward of God. You don't have to be phenomenal, but I will say you do have to be faithful. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be attractive. You don't have to be charming. None of those things I am. You don't have to be that. It's okay, you can laugh, we all know it's a joke. (laughs) You don't have to be any of those things. You all right, Kenny, you all right? Yeah, Ken's having a good time over there. 
You don't have to be any of those, but you do have to be faithful. Consider two things in this phrase. Number one, we find faithfulness to be essential. It's essential. It's not recommended. It's required. You know, one of the great problems in Christianity today, and I was talking about this in Sunday school regarding uh, us yielding our life to Christ and, and, and living daily in communion with him. We've sort of taken this idea of faithfulness and relegated it to being the domain of people who want to be superstar Christians. We have made faithfulness to be this untouchable, unattainable quality. And oftentimes we'll even look at people and say, well, they're one of the most faithful people that I've ever known. And they'll say, well, I could never be faithful like they're faithful. Why couldn't you? See, the reality is faithfulness does not take any great talent or any great ability. All it takes is consecration and commitment to Jesus Christ. You don't have to be the best in the room, but you've got to be in the room. You don't have to be the most phenomenal, but you've got to be faithful. And there's a lot that's outside of your control in regards to the way that you live your life. But you and you alone control the degree of faithfulness that you exhibit in your life. But I think that relegating it to this quality of some superstar Christian, we have absolved ourselves, all of us, of the great responsibility to be faithful. There's no excuse for unfaithfulness. I'm going to say that again. There's no excuse for unfaithfulness. I guess I should have said this to the Sunday morning crowd. You text them and tell them, preacher said, there's no excuse for unfaithfulness. Hey, we find faithfulness essential, but then we find faithfulness examined. I like how the Bible says it. The Bible always, your King James Bible always says things exactly how they ought to be said. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be faithful. It's not what it says. Be found faithful. You know what I found? A, a great many people can be faithful, real faithful, super faithful, most faithful that you've ever seen occasionally. In fits and in spurts, exhibiting faithfulness. I, this was something I really struggled with in the early years of my ministry because I, we, we'd have people that start coming to church and and man, they'd come and they'd be in. I'm talking about locked in. I'm talking about three services a week for six months straight. And then they'd disappear. And I really struggle with that because I think, well, now, what did we do wrong? How did we not minister to them? And you can say, well, preacher, they just decided to do wrong. And I know that. But listen, it's the part of the responsibility of the church to help people make the choice to do right instead of doing wrong. And I'd really struggle with it. And one day God showed me that what I was seeing was cycles and seasons in people's lives. And I caught them by den of the fact, by virtue of the fact that they were coming to church, I had caught them on an upswing. And they would go through that four-month, six-month, eight-month, whatever season of time. And then, next thing you know, they'd be gone. They'd disappear. Well, what had happened? Well, a great many of them had fell out of church. But the reality was they had done this 20 or 30 or 40 times. I just wasn't around to see that. Now I'm seeing it. Now I struggle with it. And so I, I would grapple with that. And God reminded me that for faithfulness to be faithfulness, it has to be faithfulness consistently. To be found faithful. What does that suggest? Well, two things. One, to be deemed faithful. In other words, if you were to say, I found this to be the case, what you're saying is I have deemed this to be the case. I've assessed it and I've learned that this is the case. And here's what's necessary in the life of a steward. When they are examined, they can't be found to not be faithful. Uh, a lack of faithfulness will kill your role and your ability as a steward. You don't want a steward that's awesome every now and then. 
You need one that is consistently responsible to carry out the task. The steward is not called to be the creator of a new house. The steward is called to be the consistent, faithful maintainer of the house that is entrusted to them. And here's what he's saying. We need when people examine our life, they need to see that we are a faithful individual. But then I like this, not only to be deemed faithful, but we are to be discovered to be faithful. Uh, that a man be found faithful. Wonder what it would look like. And at any given time, and I'll go ahead and admit to you that, you know, you apply this to any of our lives and we would all have failings. So I'm aware of that. But I wonder if your Christianity was defined by a snapshot on a given day, what kind of Christian you would be considered to be. I wonder if someone just, you ever seen a picture that was took when somebody wasn't paying attention? You ever seen? And they got some weird face, contorted, one eye popping out, food falling out of their mouth. And you can look and say, boy, they wasn't ready. I wonder if someone took a spiritual picture of our life when we wasn't ready, if that's what we'd look like. See, the fact is, one of these days, and i got stories I could tell after stories, one of these days the Lord's coming back, He's going to find us in a situation. One of the questions asked, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? And I understand there's bigger implications beyond that, but I wonder if He'd find faithfulness in our lives. I wonder if when He returns, if in that moment, if we'll have to be ashamed because of the way we've been living, or if we'd be found to be faithful. So I would say, number one, faithfulness is required in stewards. But then number two, I would say that focus is required in stewards. Look at verse three. Paul says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Pause there for a moment. That's where the world and most modern day Christianity would like to stop. They would like to stop at this. I don't care if you judge me. I don't care who judges me. I don't care what anyone's opinion is. But I would remind you that by the time we get to the end of verse 4, Paul says, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. He reminds us that we have to stay focused on what is the chief preeminent priority of a steward. I would say it this way. Look at verse 3 again. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. What's he saying? He's saying a steward keeps in mind who the person is that really matters and does not get bogged down in 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 uh, extraneous opinions and perspectives that are not relative to the person whose job it is to carry out the task. Notice, number one, he speaks the meaninglessness of man's opinions. I like how he says it. it's a very small thing. He doesn't say it doesn't matter at all. He just says it's not the most important thing in my life that I please you. And can I say in your life, if you'll be a fit steward of Jesus Christ, then your greatest concern must not be the opinions of other people. You must care more about what Jesus Christ thinks of your life. The steward obviously is more concerned about what the master of the home cares about than he than he is what the neighbors think, than he is what the mailman thinks, than he is what the, the UPS man thinks. He cares far more that the master is pleased than anything else. He talks about the meaninglessness of man's opinions. But number two, he talks about the snare of self's opinion. He says, yea, I judge not mine own self. Now, does Paul mean by this I have no opinions as to my life? No, that's not what he means. You see, it's one thing to have opinions. It's another thing to have judgments. A judgment is an opinion that's been put into force. There's all kinds of people have opinions all over the place. That's part of the problem in our legal system today. We got a lot of legal opinions and very few judgments being issued. 
Everybody's got an opinion about how things should and should not be. But the people often that have been placed in the role to carry out justice refuse to do so. They'll sit around and go, well, yeah, it's probably not constitutional, but oh well, you know, and nothing else. You see, it's one thing to recognize an opinion. But here Paul says this, if I'm not careful, I will allow my criteria as a steward to be dictated by my own intuition and assessment of how I am doing. Why is that a problem? Well, two reasons. Number one, because we might excuse ourselves. See, the steward, if all he's concerned about is pillowing his head at night and feeling good about the job that he's done, with no fear of or regard to what the master of the house will think of the job he's done, here's what he'll do. Every single evening when he lays his head down, even if he hasn't finished his chores, even if he hasn't done the tasks, even if he hasn't paid the bills, he will always have a reason why it was acceptable. You know what I found of most people who embrace this concept of not caring what anyone else thinks? It rarely leads to to an advancement in their life or in their manner of personal living. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who touted all the time, I don't care what anyone thinks, so I'm going to start living for Christ more. Most of the time, when people say that in a wrong spirit, it does not lead to a tightening of their standards. It leads to a loosening of their standards. Here's what Paul is saying. If I trust in my own intuition. If that's my concern above what the Lord thinks, then I'll make excuses for myself. But then I think there's a second danger, not only that we might excuse ourselves, but also for some people that we might exhaust ourselves. See, the fact is when when and you'll hear people say this, I'm my own worst critic. And and I'm not saying I am. I think pretty well of myself. But some people will say that about themselves. I'm my own worst critic, you know. And can I say there's a danger in getting bogged down into self-deprecation and self-loathing. I don't want you to misunderstand me. No man ever yet hated his own flesh. I understand that. But there are people who make an Olympic sport out of suffering and, and being lesser and being insignificant and not being enough. And part of the danger of making self-opinion the prevailing opinion in our life, one is that we think far too well of ourselves. But another is that we think far too poorly of God's child. See, the danger is that we would, on one hand, say nothing is always enough. And then on the other hand, that we would say anything is always enough. On one hand, that we would say it doesn't matter what I do, it's inconsequential. But on the other hand, would say it doesn't matter what I do because it's inconsequential. The danger in that double-edged sword. You say, well, preacher, how do we how do we navigate that? Well, he tells us in the next verse. You see, he's saying, don't get distracted in these other things. Don't get don't get bogged down in what men's opinions are, but also don't get solely focused on your opinion of yourself. Both of those are misguided. Instead, he says in verse number four, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Paul says, here as a steward is what I am most concerned with. I am most concerned with what my master thinks of my life. More than what I think of it and more than what others think of it. As long as he is pleased, that is enough for me. We would say it this way. Fealty is required in stewards. In other words, caring more about the Lord's opinion than anyone else's. Say, preacher, are you saying I should worry about what everyone else thinks? Well, not much. I mean, in as much as you got a testimony, sure. 
But your life should not be dictated by living in constant anxiety and fear of someone else's opinion of you. You say, well, preacher, that's great. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'll just live my life, do my own thing. No, that's equally as misguided. That won't lead to a life of discipline. That'll lead to a life of debauchery. If what you care about is only pleasing yourself, that won't make you holy. Uh, That'll make you gross. Amen. So instead, what we ought to care about is what does the Lord think of my life? He points to two reasons for this. First, I like this. This is probably a good life verse for most of us, myself included. For I know nothing by myself. What does he mean when he says that? Well, there's sort of two perspectives you could have. One that some commentators would suggest is is that what he's saying is uh, faithfulness is required. I don't care what anyone thinks, but I'm not saying that because there's any area of unfaithfulness that I'm aware of in my life. That That's what Paul's saying. I'm not sure if that's what Paul has in mind, but I'll tell you the thing the Lord pressed on my heart about. I think what he's saying is this. It is foolish to judge myself by my own intuition and not by the word of God for this simple reason. I don't know anything. (laughs) We could say it this way. Here's why he says it's important to care more about the Lord's opinion than anyone else's. Because, number one, we lack the ability to rightly judge ourselves. We don't know how to judge ourselves correctly. And Paul's not saying nobody's opinion matters and who cares and thumb your nose at the world. What he's saying is at the end of the day, hey, listen, the world does not have the credentials to judge me. But also at the end of the day, I don't have the credentials to judge me. At the end of the day, I don't know things in in, in proper measure. It is not my standard that matters. Imagine what would happen if the master of the home came to the house and looked at the steward and said, what a mess this place is. And the steward looked back at him and said, well, I thought it looked pretty good. Well, I thought it looked pretty good. Well, the yard ain't been mowed in in, in six months since I left. Well, you know, it could, I don't know. It could do another week, I guess. I, there's dirty dishes in the sink. Well, yeah, but there's a few clean ones in the cupboard. You know what the master would do? He'd look at him and say, listen, I don't care if it's good enough for you. It's not good enough for me. By the same token, imagine if the master of the home came and found his steward trembling, hiding, terrified because something was not in perfect order and perfect measure and fearful that they had failed and that they were a disgrace. And imagine the master looking at him and saying, listen, I understand it didn't all go the way that you hoped, but you've done a fine job and I'm proud of the work that you've done. You see, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And the problem when you become the ultimate Uh, judge in your life as to the standards and measure of how you're living is one that you judge yourself too harshly or two that you judge yourself too loosely. You say, preacher, what can I do about that? You can let the word of God be the measuring stick of your life and determine that as long as your life measures up to what God reasonably expects out of you. And he always it's a reasonable service. This thing is it's a reasonable sacrifice. That doesn't mean it's reasonable by our definition, but it means that God will never ask us uh, Uh, to do things that with his power and help we are unable to achieve. And if we'll live our lives saying, Lord, long as I please you, that's enough. That's where we'll find peace. One, because we lack the ability to rightly judge ourselves. But then I like what he says here. He says, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. Now, here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, I don't judge myself because I'm not qualified to judge myself. But that does not mean... Therefore, that I can live any way that I please because I can plead ignorance. 
He's saying, no, I know this. I know even though I may not have the criteria within my own intuition, he that judgeth me is the Lord. And he's given me his word whereby I can ascertain whether my life would be pleasing to him. He's saying, in other words, we cannot look at it and say to ourselves, well, I just don't know anything and I'll just do the best that I can. That's how most Christians live, really, at the end of the day. I'm just going to kind of do what feels right and hope God understands. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to live my life and make decisions best as I think I ought to. No, friend. Hey, if, if that's how God expected you to live, why would he give you a Bible? Gave you a Bible so you could look in the Word of God and learn what He expects out of you. And here's what Paul would say. Listen, I don't let self be the criteria because I lack the authority to rightly judge myself. He says, it's not my place to say. It's the Master's place to say. It's not my place to excuse myself. It's not my place to, to excoriate myself. It's my place to do what He commands and trust to Him that He will be pleased with the results if I've done it in true heart and in best effort. I would say this, that fealty is required. And finally, and I'm done, faith is required. Verse 5, therefore. So he's laid this all out. Therefore. So what do we do now? Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. In other words, he says, do not count out one way or the other what you're doing for Jesus Christ. That's what he means when he says judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. In context matters in your Bible. He's not saying we shouldn't make uh, judgments about things in life. I, the, 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 you know, spiritual man judgeth all things. But what he's saying is don't decide that what you've done is enough or that what you've done is to no effect. Because one day the Lord will come back and he will show us what truly counts. Why is faith required in a steward? Well, two, three, four, eight things. Notice, first, there's got to be faith in a coming day. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. You know why the steward does what he does? Because he believes the master's coming back. And he believes he's going to have to give an account of what he's done. I would say in your life and mine that knowing and understanding the Lord's coming back and that we're going to have to give an account for the, hey, there's a judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have to stand before him one day. We're going to have to give an account for the things that we've done. The steward there's examples in the Bible of stewards that uh, watching over their Lord's house and their Lord's vineyards and, and due to a lack of belief in, in their master's return, begin to grow drunken and abuse and, and do violence to the other servants. What is Christ trying to teach by that? That when we let our faith in a coming day of reckoning and of giving an account slip away, it will produce ill effects in our life. We won't be a very good steward. He shows us we've got to have faith in a coming day. Number two, faith in a coming disclosure. He says, who will, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. What's he going to show on that day? Well, we see him, we would say it this way, faith in a coming day, faith in a coming disclosure. He'll be disclosing things unseen. That's what it says. Bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Things that nobody's seen, he's going to bring into the light. Now, what does that mean? Well, things that you'd rather stay in the dark are going to be brought into the light. But it also means things that you thought nobody would ever see because they'd never see the light of day will be brought into the light. The things you've done for the Lord that you thought nobody would ever know about and ever take notice of, one day he'll show it for you. And then things that you thought, well, I've got that good and buried. Nobody will ever know I did that. Well, one day it's all going to be brought into the light. 
the disclosing of things unseen. But then I like that last phrase. will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, the disclosing of thoughts unspoken. In other words, he's going to show the motives, the thoughts, the intents of the heart. I know that often, because the world is so focused on intents without action, there's this knee-jerk thing to say, well, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. All that matters is what you do. Can I say this? It does matter what your intentions are. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason and it not mean a thing to God. The Bible also tells us that when a man by faith gives unto the Lord, it's reckoned not of that which he hath, but of that which he hath not. I think when people do genuinely intend to do something for God, even if they're in some way providentially prevented, I think God takes note of that. It tells me this, God's going to one day, he's going to bring all those thoughts out into the open. And then I would say this, faith in a coming declaration. And then shall every man have praise of God. Context matters. Is he saying God's going to praise every human being? No, he's saying every one of his stewards, every one of his servants, every one of those that that what they did for him went unnoticed and, and, and unapplauded. One day, those they will have praise of God. One day, God will make these things known. You see, the fact is, you and I, we're not going to be a very good steward if we don't have faith. We need faithfulness, we need focus, we need fealty, and we need faith. And we need our life to be about pleasing our Lord who's entrusted all this to our care. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord. If he's spoken to you about some matter in your life, I don't want you to hesitate. We're all stewards of his if we're saved by his grace. And I don't. I know I'm a steward, but I want to be a good steward. I don't want to be a shameful steward. I don't want to be a poor steward. I want to be a good steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.